and welcome to the very 81st Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, a podcast all about board games, tabletop games, games that you can play in the safety and security of your very own home with your friends, your family, the people that you trust. Don't go outdoors. Do you know where your dogs are? Where you know that they are remaking the Indiana Jones films with dogs. Are they? You know what the first one's called? What's it called? Raiders of the Lost... This is Paul Dean. He's been doing this all day. (laughs) Uh, My name is Quentin Smith. I've been uh, sort of the subject of a lot of Paul's jokes. It's been awful. Who are you? Oh, no. I'm Matt Lees. I've also been the subject of Paul's jokes, all of which involve the word bark and dogs. This is a podcast about board games, and we are going to be talking about some board games. Yes, we have got a real humdinger of a show. Mm. Uh, No one said that word in 10 years, but if there's a call to bring it back, it's this podcast. We're going to be talking about Reef, the sequel to the award-winning Azul. We're going to be talking about Newspeak, a game that drove Matt genuinely crazy. We're going to be talking about Museum, which is one heck of a thing. We're going to be talking about Fallout, the board game, and we're going to be talking about our experience solving a crime using cream puffs i'm both excited and hungry my appetite my literal appetite is wetted but also my metaphorical appetite for podcasts is i have an appetite for life that cannot be stopped and must begin now how would you where should we begin describe your appetite for board games uh ongoing medium rare (laughs) sure great uh let's start with reef and Mm -hmm. we're gonna have to be very careful here because we played reef at the very end of the uk board game expo if you enjoyed this put your hands up oh dear oh oh no guys making a joke about reef oh Oh. the band somebody at home got that that's good because i thought you were being unusually cutting no 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 i wasn't i was making a bad joke I was just getting in on the, the vibe of the day. And yet... <laughs> but we do have to be careful with this, right? Because yes. uh, we always joke about how at, uh, when we go to board game explos and play loads of amazing board games from the best publishers in the world, mm-hmm. we do end up exhausted. And there's usually a game where we just don't have the mental capacity to play it. Yeah. Because we've only really come to appreciate this recently, but learning and playing board games is exhausting. Mm. So um, people might remember Paul's fabulous review of Azul last year. What a year. wonderful game. How I enjoy that game so so much. Azul. I would describe it as a game that initially looks kind of a bit staid and dull about tile placement and creating patterns and selecting tiles and then chucking tiles that you don't want in a bin that other people have to pull from that turns somehow into a quite tight kind of vile angsty revengey game of throwing garbage at people to make them lose <laughs> points it's actually really devious really clever and really pretty and so i was excited about reef because it has a similar sort of tile collection build things mechanic of take what you can as soon as possible deny other people this sort of thing and make a nice pattern except well yes it's not just similar it's the next game in the series right it- the is. next move series, which is, I believe, all abstract games, all with four letters in the title. Oh, what's the next one? Like beer or something? Uh, yeah, biscuit. That doesn't have four letters in it. Bums. <laughs> Woof has four letters. It does. All of this is true. Reef is a game where everyone gets a little board showing like a bit of ocean floor. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, um, not oh, a sort of very nice clacky plastic, same as Azul's tiles are made of. Um, and you're going to be building up reefs, but rather than reefs being built up over, how long do they take? Like millions of years? Yeah, a long time. We're done with the ones we've got now. I think that's all over. Yeah, yeah. it's bad. Uh, but hey, in the fictional world of board games, <laughs> you can build them you in can just minutes. Build a reef. So yes, on your turn, let's get this right. You either draw a card from the sort of central shop of reef tiles, or you're going to play a card from your hand, which enables you to put 
new chunks of reef down on your reef. But every card has two parts. You're going to put tie up, put pieces of reef down. This game is terrible for mm-hmm. plosives on a mic. You're going to put pieces of reef down, and then you're going to look at the bottom of the card, which says if you have this pattern of reef, like two orange things next to each other, you're going to get points. Yeah. And if you have like eight lots of orange next to each other, you're going to get four times as many points. Yeah. So it's a weird thing of like, you have to first of all do the thing of putting down a purple and a yellow, but then you have to check for the score criteria below that. And it means a lot of the game is building up this hand of cards whereby you kind of think, oh, this is going to be great because this one gives me the purples and then this one's going to make the purple score. But then the difficult thing about this game is you kind of forget that you, you it's easy to become fixated on just the rewards that you're interested in or just the tiles that you put down that you're interested in. But then you forget that when you have to do all of it, you're like, oh no, but I've, because, you, because you're physically building upward, making like columns. Yeah, we should say that it's a, uh, the maybe the unique selling point of this game is it's like a fabulously three-dimensional thing. Yes. It's a, you've only got like a five by five grid yeah. to put reef tiles down on, but you can always put any reef piece on top of a reef piece. And when you're scoring patterns, you just look vertically downwards yeah. on your board. So anything beneath doesn't count for anything. No. It just means you look down vertically and whatever you see is what you've got. But it means you do have that tendency to be like, this is going to score me loads of points. And then you get to it and you're like, oh no, I covered up the thing I needed, which was going to make me, oh no. So it's kind of like a future planning game uh, where there is that element of, do you want to make this happen now? Or is there a card on the table that you're worried someone else is going to buy before you do? I do remember having turns where I was desperate to play a card so I could score the pattern on it. But then it's like, oh, also you get, I don't know, two yellow pieces of reef. And I'm like, well, I don't care about those yellow pieces. Yes. I just want to do the bottom mm-hmm. half of the card, which means like, oh, I'll just bung those two yellow reef pieces in the corner. And that's absolutely not what the game is about. That, that was my whole experience, though. I was quite bad at planning this engine. And most of the time, I just wanted to make a shape and score it rather than having the mental capacity to be like, I'll make this now because it will also be a similar shape to the one that I need next round, which, you know, in theory, you have a wonderful sequence going But I think forward. in terms of, it's interesting you bring up mental capacity because I think at this particular point we played, yeah. you were more broken than any of us. Well, it'd, um, been, it'd been a long to- con. And as we yeah. said at the start of this, we were all maybe not the best reef builders we to approach this reef. broken in different flavors, but I do remember specifically the fact that when you do build up the reefs, the idea, I think, in the game is to be malleable and to, to build a pattern and then change the pattern to just adapt your scores. Yeah. And I remember you specifically had built the same colors all the way up. You'd, just been, you'd never been changing the color of a space. You'd always been like, if a yellow had to go down, you would put it on top of one that was already yellow. Like a child, I was thinking <laughs> so basically about Which my... Is, but it's true. I you mean, have that, to... That was a strategy to just be like, all right, mm. I'm going to make this shape and I'm going to keep it the same for the whole game and then try and score on it. But mm. I think it was very much a game where, and for me, I think it was a kind of an abstract that was a little too clever for me. I had plans, but then I was actually stepping on my own plans because I wasn't able to look three or four steps ahead. The best thing in it, and maybe let's not bury the lead, I don't think any of us think it's as good as Azul. Because Azul is a classic, and you two both chose to take tea, tea sips of your tea right at this moment, and thereby denied me what I craved, which was, we don't think it's as good as Azul, right? I no, no, I no, no, no. I've not played this all yet. So oh, you haven't? No, it was one of the few games that we took oh, to GPC yeah. that I really wanted to play. <laughs> And I just I kept missing the window. Let me tell you, Matt, Azul is great. But I know, I know. It's satisfying. You're scoring points. You're making this beautiful thing. And Reef, it was hard work and it didn't uh, tickle me in the same way. What's really nice about it is that uh, a lot of games tease you with combos where they're like, uh, a game might say, oh, maybe if you get this card and this card and this card, you could get 
100 points. Mm. Um, but the nice thing about Reef is that once you're holding a card, you've got it, which means you can spend turn after turn in Reef going, I'm going to take this card and this card and this card, and then your next three turns will be playing that card and that card. That's that true, card. yeah. And you can always do that crazy combo yeah. that you want to do. No one ever takes that away from you, which is really kind of quite nice. I think yeah. the issue I have with it, though, and it's it's just a is the fact that you can take these things and you can work towards your own little combo that will pop off and get you points. Yes. But because it's an abstract, uh, there isn't really a lot of variety in terms of the sorts of things you're doing. And so I found the problem was that I was watching other people doing their combos and then I'd do a similar combo and just get loads less points. And I think the nice thing about kind of what I like about Euro puzzles often is they give you a bit of flavor. So you'd be like, hey, my strategy didn't work out nearly as well as yours, but I had fun. And when it triggered, I felt quite satisfied. Yes. And, and I felt when this, I was like, oh, that was all right. And I'd be like, I got six points. And then you'd have a go and you'd be like, I just got 20 points. And I was yes. like, oh, okay. And Azul, you, while you are scoring points all the time, Azul does have enough end game scoring that it's like, oh, he's getting more points than me now, but maybe I'll be able to right. get lots of columns and rows and maybe I'll win. And sometimes you do. Um, <laughs> my weird problem with Reef is that for a for an abstract, for a game that's got so much plastic and is so expensive and theoretically classy, um, we were just playing with prototype components, but even when I see photos of what the finished game will look like, it doesn't look as exciting as a game about building 3D reefs should be. Right, and I think this is actually a very valid point. It is uh, as tactile as Azul, and I was expecting something that was as colourful and maybe as aesthetically pleasing, and it was not for me, I'm afraid. It mm. was not quite... I mean, what a lovely idea that you could actually build a three-dimensional reef and it would look all colourful and gorgeous, and yep. you build them in this, and it looks quite good but not quite what i thought it might no, what i thought it could be credit to designer emerson matsuchi though because he is uh while we're not always the biggest fans of his games because we tend to look for stuff that's just so perfect and maybe that's not quite uh him although paul and i have just finished a review of uh, century eastern wonders which i did want to which is him and i did want to give the badge to but credit to him for just designing stuff that's always so different yes he did specter ops he did that hidden role game set in the specter ops universe crossfire which was yes. super interesting he's done century with these games you combine now he's done reef he is being one heck of an imaginative boy yeah, it's actually remarkably hard, I think, for someone to be as diverse as that and to just, uh, you know, take take a right angle, go on a tangent and be like, I'm going to make a game about something completely different with wholly new mechanics. Yep. So Reef didn't tickle the bottom of our ocean quite successfully <laughs> enough to get us excited. <sighs> what are we going to talk about next? Let's uh, please the readers with something that I think is awesome and mm -hmm. also makes me laugh just remembering our game of it. Let's talk about New Speak. A game that isn't out yet. Um, it had a Kickstarter, but then the Kickstarter got pulled for reasons um, that are quite boring and logistical. Um, but there will be a Kickstarter for New Speak coming soon. It Good. is a team game about cracking codes and developing codes. You've got this amazing hot pink box. You've got this Orwellian future with a bunch of locations on the table that all look amazing. Like a big uh, card showing a lovely supermarket and the supermarket looks amazing and it's yeah. bright and vivid. Or the lovely gym. Yes, or the lovely gym full of sexy people. And Yeah. Uh, but what we've got here is a day after tomorrow world where it's an augmented reality. And if you flip any of these cards, you see what the gym or the supermarket really look like. And it's bad, you know, it's broken windows and it's an artist imagining a bad sci-fi cyberpunk escape yeah just boring gray rooms really. yeah but um if you are on the sort of rebel side in a game of new speak you are trying to flip these cards you want to reveal reality to people and you do that by everyone has a dial and they assign where they're going to go so maybe you have nine locations and if the three of us are the three spies or rebels we all need to secretly select like location three then we all reveal and if we went to location three great we flip that we've won 
But there is another team. The other team are the Orwellian uh, people who watch us. And of course, Orwellian is a fit, fitting term here because new speak is a term from 1984 and refers to the new lingo that gets created in uh, sort of fascist uprisings. So what you've got then is this other team of Orwellian watchers who, if they can figure out where you're going to go, they announce where they're going to go. So if they pick location three and you also go to location three or any of you do, you're busted and they take that location away so it can never be flipped. I feel like you're bearing the lead again here because the the amazing mechanic, the core of this game yep. is... Here we go! Everybody is talking in front of each other all the time and you have to somehow, as a rebel, communicate to the other rebel players where you're going to go without the other team knowing and how do you do that if you're all sat around the table and you can all see each other well obviously you talk in code this or... is how I like to explain games though I like to like give all the oh, stuff up front and, and have my and dessert. here's the dessert here's but the dress yeah. this is this is the the start of the dessert it's all of these things rolled into one this wonderful idea that first of all the game gives you sort of some help by giving you these cards where they say uh, you can use this column or this row where these words actually mean these other things you have a code sheet basically and there's a, there's a whole bunch for yeah. each of the different potential code sheets uh, you have a big sheet that the people who are watching the people who are kind of like you know the lives of others listening in on these conversations have a sheet of all of these different words and all of the potential things they can mean with like this different range of, of potential code sheets they have. So you're then having conversations yep. and you're maybe dropping some of these words, some more innocuous than others, into conversations to then specifically mean other words. And it means that the people listening have to listen out for these words and then gradually deduce what that per, what they might, which of these columns they might be using. Yes, because then, you'd have to be consistently using one of those columns. And then if yeah. you feel like you're being rumbled, there's mechanics in it so you can actually change your sheet, but you can only move a certain direction. So Which you, is exactly how codes work in, in real life. Yes. You swap the cipher so that suddenly everything means something different. But the wonderful idea that you are, you are right next to the players who are trying to decode your conversation and they're looking at you and they're confused and you're confused because yeah. you're trying to talk to somebody sad opposite you and communicate well, a secret is, idea to them, <laughs> sort of... <laughs> You know, already. by fudging so your language the, and uh, the key thing about wonderful. this game. The key thing about this game is we looked at it originally, and I think um, having just looked at Decrypto, which is also mm -hmm. a code cracking game, which is fantastic. Yeah, yep. people can read Paul's review of Decrypto if they search for Hello. Shut Up and Sit Down. Decrypto, it's one of our written reviews. Decrypto is great. It is. I think it's a really solid design. Absolutely. Um, this is very different, and I think from looking at it, I thought, ah. But it's it's totally different, and it has it has fresh problems because it's a completely different design. And I ran into a really big problem with it. What did you run into, Matt? And I mean, we should caveat as well that even though this game is still kind of a work in progress, and they're kind of they're still trying to sharpen up a few things. And I think the pitfall I fell into, having talked to the designers, is a problem that occasionally comes up, and they're trying to work out ways around it. The problem I had was it was a <laughs> go on. It was a game in which I was part of the spy network. Yep, and. I couldn't understand my <laughs> colleagues at all. So we were all sharing the same list of code words and they were all talking to each other. And then I could not, I was trying to use the code words in certain ways. And then you, Paul, were talking to someone else. And then the conversations you were having, I didn't understand. I didn't understand what you meant. I didn't understand what you were doing. Right. And then you would go to certain locations mm -hmm. and I would have no idea why. And this continued for like three or four rounds. And in a way, it was kind of perfect because it meant that my vast confusion left Quinn's feeling like there was some crazy psyops and I was tricking them into... And so they had no... No one had any idea what was going on. So in a way, the game actually successfully was being played what, by our what, team. What was really lovely as well is... You know how in... Because... Um, 
to clarify, I was part of the Orwellian government team. I was playing with actually yes. with Edward from Heavy Cardboards, a lovely uh, podcast that talks about heavy games uh, that people can definitely go check out. Mm. Edward, lovely guy. Um, but me and Edward, you know, at the end of each round, when the spies have all decided, the rebels have decided where to go, then you can talk with your team. You know, the, the Orwellian lives of others, code, you know, listeners can look at their notes because we're literally making notes with erasable pens and we're like, what just happened? <laughs> you know? And then you get that lovely thing that we see in hidden movement games. So much of the thrill of those games is listening to people talk about you and listening to what you might yeah. have meant. Yeah. And it was really fun to talk to Edward and be, and have to share all of our working and like Paul pointed at his nose. Does that mean he's using, he's using the word feature, which means lively, which might be the pub. And Edward was like, no, that's crazy. <laughs> You're full of yeah. nonsense. But it was, it was so indecipherable both to you and to me that we were, we were all just grasping for, for potential that, theory. Yeah, might be that doing. is the weird thing is the, the things that you don't even notice you're doing or you don't, you feel are not significant. The, like nose point, like, was I doing that? I don't know. I wasn't aware I was doing that. Is that a, is that maybe that's a thing I could do now? No, I can't do that now because they're looking at what I do with my fingers. Why? I never thought of that. <laughs> and whilst, while we were playing Reef, you'd perhaps hit your lowest ebb for the Oh weekend. my word. These things are busy. Like, and we do, a, you know, I think we played Reef with another guy who was aware of our work and I felt very sorry for that man because we were just sitting there <laughs> looking like the most miserable people in the world and it wasn't the game's fault and it wasn't anything's fault it was just it'd been a long day and we're very old and this we played probably around half 11 at night on the on one of the last days <laughs> we'd have about three pints of beer which for us <sighs> not a lot of sleep is either. the teenage equivalent of eight pints of beer yeah and i lost my mind <laughs> you I, did I became incredibly frustrated you melted you matthew lee's this i, I was so angry i've got a bone to pick with you because <laughs> oh. you were angry that you couldn't decide what paul was doing and worse and i think this was made it even more annoying for you because paul was was able to meet up with other members of the team. Yeah. Um, the, the, you, your side was winning. Yes. So Paul was actually succeeding. Yeah. And flipping locations. And that made it obviously insufferable for you because it meant that, you know, I felt that, like I was losing my mind. But I saw you having a bad time in the game. And then you started using your anger as part of the codes to try and communicate yes. with Paul. Meanwhile, me, Muggins, trying to make sure you have a good time of being like, oh, Matt, don't worry. You know, the game will be over soon. Or like, oh, you know, it's tough, isn't it? Yeah, saying all the things that I would want to hear in your situation. And you were using... Yeah, no, I was. ...your misery and exaggerating it. And that was actually like, I've got to say, very clever. Um, <laughs> You are a real piece of work. <laughs> I am a piece of work. That was me being pure Machiavellian. It did help me that the fact that we were being taught the game um, by the designer who yes. was sat next to us, who very kindly was actually, he understood what I was doing. And that was kind of one of those things where I knew that if he'd actually been on our team, we would have been in a different situation because he had clocked what I was doing. Yes. And I was pretending, I was frustrated that I couldn't understand what was going on, mainly because it was a team game and I felt like I didn't have a team. So at least these guys, when they were trying to work out what on earth you were doing, they could talk about it themselves. I was just in my own head going in circles being like, what's yeah. happening? Yeah. And then in my frustration, I would be like, Paul, and I would say something and I would put real emphasis on one word, which was a word on our code sheet, which felt like a really clear sign. And then I tried that two or three rounds and no one was getting it. And I, was I like, did not get it at all. And no that was the point where I was like, then I just became genuinely frustrated because I, I couldn't understand what you guys were doing. And I tried to get on board with it by using overt clues, using the, the sequence of codes that we had. It didn't work. And then you guys kept saying, just say it again, say what you said again. And I'm like, and you're like, no, that doesn't yeah, work because I, if I repeat it, it, yeah. If you repeat a code twice, then you're just giving away the code. Yep. Like, so it needs to just be dropped into conversations and you need to know that people are going to get it. Yeah. And so I was just exasperated and I did become very frustrated and fed up and people get, it got bad because you were like, no, 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 Matt, keep talking. And I was like, no, I tried everything I could think of in terms of 
my approach to how we would use this code. And in the end, it turned out you guys being successful, you weren't even using the code sheet. You were literally like, you went to the neighborhood by being like, oh, we're all good friends, aren't we? And you were just being like neighbors. Referencing a popular <laughs> Australian soap opera, Neighbors. So actually you were like, you were being successful, but you were being successful in that way of being like the people trying to crack the code. No one had noticed that there wasn't a code. <laughs> Which is kind of brilliant. It's kind of brilliant. Well, so I'm not going to lie. Like, let's, so let's stress, right? So we're all complaining and trying to unpick this design. I would buy this game in a heartbeat. Yeah. Know, to add to my collection. I think it's fascinating. It's not available yet. The Kickstarter will be going live at some point. Um, but when it does, we'll absolutely be putting it in Shut Up and Sit Down's Monday Games news because yeah. I've just not played anything like this. The most similar thing is Dead Last, um, which I did a written review oh, of. Oh, yes. Yes, a fascinating game about deciding who around the table yeah. you're going to kill. Again, by talking in plain sight. Yeah, and um, the secret signals and things like that. Yeah, so yeah. people can definitely Google uh, Dead Last um, for my Dead Last review. But And just keep an eye out for Newsbeat coverage. I mean, I think, I mean, honestly, I've got to say, though, I, I had a pretty awful time playing it. Like, mm. I'm going to say, like, it was, it was yeah. a really interesting design. I think it needs a little work because I do think that like it there's nothing worse than playing a hidden 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 information team game and sitting there and feeling like you're an island and feeling Absolutely. like you have no yeah, way of fighting with your team it was a really bad experience but i think it was unfortunate and i think there's ways to kind of tweak that in the game but um yeah it's oh, really interesting but like i had an awful time the like. designers were even kicking around an idea that if a player can't communicate with the rebels on their team they could just go and join the yeah i mean a bad honestly talking to them like they seemed like they they were aware it was a little problem that needed fixing and it might not even be a problem that you have but uh yeah it's really fun but man i got angry <laughs> Okay. All right. <laughs> Let's talk a bit more about a card game that we teased on the last podcast because someone asked us, what's the best thing in the UK Games Expo? And you said museum and gave people like a 30 second. Yeah. But museum is one heck of a card game um, that I described at the time and maybe on the last podcast as a card game injected with human growth hormone. <laughs> um, this was a Kickstarter a while back that's soon going to encounter a general release. Illustrated by Vincent Vincent Dutre, and I mentioned that first because it is maybe the most epic work of board game illustration I've seen in uh, maybe ever. I, don't I know. think like there's been a trend recently of like luxury board games, and what or just usually... lu luxury art and design. Well, this is the thing: is like people when they usually say luxury board games, what they mean is like you've got a fancier box and you get fancier minis and you get metal coins. But this is actually for me, this is a real luxury product, and the fact that it's not like you know incredibly produced with ridiculously expensive ostentatious materials it's yes. just like the amount of love and work and yeah. detail that's gone to it is just startling i think the board game industry uh, could be probably called guilty of mistaking like opulence for you know like luxury or class yes. you know it's like yes kickstarters that you know will charge you a bunch of extra money for like metal coins and big pieces of plastic and big pieces of wood it's like that's different from design that took someone as museum took vincent it's I, something like three years of drawing. Mm, yeah. Um, so yeah, what museum is, you all run competing museums and the centerpiece is that you have like five decks of cards or maybe six relating to different continents. And on your turn, you can draw cards from these decks or like sort of little offerings of cards flipped off the deck. There's something like 300 or 400 cards in the game and every single one is an oversized card featuring an incredible illustration of an artifact you'd find in a museum. So Paul mentioned at the end of last podcast, um, a Polynesian map, which yeah. I've never seen before, which was like a grid of strings and they hang shells on the strings and they can, because it's strings, do nice curved lines and it becomes a completely waterproof map of currents, sea currents that they made for sailing around. It's one of the most awesome things I've ever seen. And what was great about Vincent's art is I could look at his 
art faithfully replicating this object and it was as if i was looking at the actual object right and this this is one of the things that made me like it so much more as a player i mean you know if it was a game about running a museum and collecting a deck of cards and like get sets of this and arrange them like that that could be good but it did feel like I am running a museum or a gallery or a place where people go to look at stuff that's great because I actually like the stuff that I have. I like, <laughs> I was yeah. collecting boats. I was collecting uh, certain artifacts from Asia and I was looking at the cards and going like, I want that in my museum, not just because I'll get points, but because it's good. Yeah, to clarify, this. this is a set collection game. Maybe the uh, area of the design that I thought was the most awesome was that, well, aside from the cards, is was a little underexplored because you have this enormous personal board, which is your mm-hmm. museum. And then as you get cards, because you're collecting sets, you have to lay them out. And if you manage, they have to be contiguous lines, right? Yes. So all of your boats have to be together in a big lump. And then you might have like Japanese stuff, but stuff is categorized by the country it's from and the type of thing it is. So you could do a military hardware exhibit or you could do a Roman exhibit, but what you really want to do, you'll have military hardware, but then the Roman stuff will be on the edge. So it can also be part of your Roman exhibit, which is in the next room. And it didn't feel like the focus of the game, which is a shame because I felt like it was awesome. Kind of like, in fact, it's Arboretum, isn't it? It's taking cards and then placing cards in lines and rows and curves. Almost like a route and you imagine people walking around your museum and they walk in and they see the enormous like boats that you hung from the ceiling and then they they uh, turn right. Because obviously you can reorganize your museum at any point. Yeah, which Which is is good. It felt not punishing. But I still think you could end up like uh, boxing yourself in because I I, I very much had a point where I was like, well, look, I'm going to have my vases here (laughs) and then I'm going to (laughs) have like, you know, that sort of vase stuff and then I'm going to link that up with my Roman collection here from that vase to this and it did feel like kind of trying to make a little web, but I was, I got to say like, I was not like curating as maybe thematically as much as you guys. I was just playing it like a game. I, yeah. <laughs> I well, had, this is great then. How did you feel about it as a no, game? No, it was great. Yeah. I mean, it was a thing of like, I had some cards at the start and you know, you get the options of being like, oh, should I go for these collections or these collections? So I, I, I kind of went with something that I thought was more interesting. I think I was trying to get loads of Egyptian stuff and I was like, cool, I'm just going to, so yeah, I guess I was, I guess yeah. at the start of the game, I was like, I'm more interested in going down this angle. Um, but yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. Actually, one of the, my favorite things about it is usually with set collection games or like Race for the Galaxy games where you've got lots of cards and you have to decide what kind of cards you want. You look at your opening hand, right? And you go, oh, I've got a lot of this. In museum, I think all of us just looked at the board and went, what do I like? Yeah. What do I want? Yeah. And, you know, for me, that's like, I like Chinese things. It's like, maybe I'll focus on Chinese. And yeah. Oh, then, but even better for this game from like an educational standpoint, I realized I knew nothing about Polynesian artifacts and culture. I knew nothing. <laughs> but then like, because there's that nice paragraph of flavor text on the bottom of each card, I started collecting Polynesian things because I was learning. Yeah. I'm such a nerd. Uh, no, it's yeah. terrific. I like the way that when you have to actually pay for things to be added to your collection you have to then use other cards from your hand that the yeah. values of those to pay for something to go in and they kind of sit in front of your board and they're technically things that you will get back like you'll be able to like bring them all back into your hand but while they're out there other people can buy them from your collection like yeah them from you so you have that thing of being like oh i'm gonna use this great card to buy these things but you're like please don't buy it please i really want to put that in my museum <laughs> and when you're like where's it gone and someone else has bought it you're like oh no and i really love the theming of um the kind of flavor that stops you from doing things of being like, yeah, you have these sets, but then it becomes a thing of like, uh, I think certain bits of the, the public get at kind of annoyed if you're not using yeah, the, stuff. The public start getting sympathetic uh, towards different cultures because this is set in the age when Victorian European powers were just taking everything from everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes putting that into good, you know, uh, conservation programs and sometimes just taking stuff. And stuff that obviously still hasn't been returned. You know, the obvious example being the Elgin marbles where Mm -hmm. Greece is like, can we have our priceless artifact back, please? And the British Museum says, 
I can't hear you. La 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 la. Can't la, hear la, you. La. I'm playing marbles. So the way that works is that yeah, tokens come out at random and get put on a continent. So maybe it becomes like the continent of Africa. The the public is like, why aren't we giving these African things back? Um, and then all the stuff you're not, if you're displaying it in your warehouse, that's fine. But like you say, it's cards that are in front of you are sorry, in your museum, that's fine. But cards that are in front of you are in your warehouse. Yes. And every card in your warehouse that you took but aren't displaying is negative points at the end of the game because that's what the public don't like you doing. Yeah, because they're like, you're just keeping that stuff in a warehouse. But it's the hilarious thing of like, the public might be like, you have to give those African things back, but they won't care about like, for example, you stealing stuff from China, which means that you might just take all your African stuff and put them in someone else's warehouse. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Just be like, I'm not leaving that. I'm taking that there. So there was, that element was nice, but I also really like the fact that you have like an embargo coming up and it being like, boom, like now, until this is lifted, like no one can buy stuff from this part of the it world. It was like yeah. a war in the Middle East, and which actually, I guess, that probably wasn't the card because when there's a war in a part of the world, that's often when people do show up and do steal stuff. Yeah, but it's a nice thing of being like having this big cardboard thing that just says embargo, and it's like, boom, it's like a stamp has been put on the board. Of yeah. Like, you can't now do this stuff. It's it's all thematically sort of relevant. It doesn't feel tacked on as game mechanics. The same way you hire yeah, assistants yeah, and yeah, things like this. And you hire staff, people to curate the museum, and these it's huge, like the board that all the cards go on in the center is this massive thing with lush the, the counters you put on to be like embargo the boards that sit in front of you it's this it's a big game yeah but it doesn't feel flashy no and no. what's funny though is that i've been thinking about this a lot recently you know how like people will buy kickstarters based on the amount of miniatures in the game people they, there's an awareness in board games that like oh miniatures are great miniatures make games better look at scythe you know that game doesn't need plastic miniatures but it, people love it people like having the little plastic mechs um, but what people need to understand is that really nice cards, really nice art do exactly the same job. Yeah. So, you know, while Shadow of Sit Down might not be the biggest fan of miniatures games, we are still aesthetes. You know, we still care about like if a game looks nice enough, it will change up opinion on a game. And that's the case with museum. You know, it's just so nice. Azul is another example. If Azul, you know, wasn't half as nice as it was, how much would we still adore it? You know, not as much. Right. And there's something I think as well about the theming of it and the fact that like it is nice and the fact that it's a game where you it's a set collection game and you start to think they're collecting these and the way that you start to use that of being like I'm going to start putting very expensive priceless things in my museum's like warehouse because I know that Quinn's is going to snap them up and that's going to be good for me or the fact that you think I'm going to buy those things because that person is just dumping them in their warehouse temporarily but they're clearly going to want them back and as soon as they appear you're like Whoop! and then people <laughs> go what yeah so I like that the fact that often you will have games like this where you're like they're working on this set but it actually behoves you in this it's not that difficult to kind of nick things from people uh, without getting in the way of your strategy it's not like you're going aha take that but no i'd never felt like i was um, and we've noticed this in games recently a lot of um game design is moving away from players actively blocking or ruining each other's plans instead games are being designed in a way that we are interacting and we yeah. are hindering each other's plans mm-hmm. but i'm not ever going to stop you from collecting pots yeah I'm, I'm just i might take one pot and, you're and like, often no! if i take that pot chances are you might be able to get it back right? right it's not completely gone but i like that and i thought that was a really fun thing of being like you know this idea of us being museum owners who were like i'm going to steal that priceless vase right from under his eyes yeah, i think it would be quite good as a two-player game as well because keeping an eye on four museums is tricky but that like if you're just oh one yes one, the head yeah, I think yeah. it'd be really nice. So, head to head, cool. Yeah, that is Museum. That had a Kickstarter a while back and should be entering a retail release um, in an amount of time. Ooh. Matthew Lees. Yes. I'm thinking of a world on fire. Those aren't the lyrics. I was trying to do a Fallout <laughs> reference. Fallout <laughs> is a video game where 
after nuclear bombs fall, you can walk around and get increasingly large guns. I just <laughs> want to kiss a place on your arm. Um, yes, um, I've been playing the Fallout board game. Yeah, based on a post-apocalyptic future world. And I, I've made a video review of it, which is going to be appearing on the website. A bold new format for Shut Up and Sit Down. Either appearing on the website soon or is already on the website, depending on when this podcast goes. Ooh. I don't know. Anyway, um, I've been playing that and I've played that a handful of times and I've got to say it's not very good. Okay. Oh dear. Um, and it's kind of one of those things where usually we wouldn't review things if they're not very good. Um, and that was kind of sitting in that box of being like, ah, this yeah. is not great probably just ignore it. But then I played it a few more times just trying to get to the, I was trying to find a way it would work because I played it with four and it was like, oh, this is very slow. felt like nothing's really happening. You're kind of moving characters around the wasteland, exploring stuff, collecting things, fighting things. It sounds quests. quite similar to the Witcher board game, which Paul uh, yeah. either reviewed or oh, talked about. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like four years, five years, four years ago now. <laughs> like I remember when that came out and it was around for a while and then it wasn't anymore because I don't think it really ever picked up any sort of traction or... No, but similar in the way that they're trying to replicate the experience of a role-playing video game by letting all the players waddle around and level up yes and obviously both the witcher and fallout are very big popular video game series yes. i mean fallout's been around in some incarnation i was thinking for like 20 years now and it's only got bigger and more popular i mean it's it's really spiked in recent years let's be real but also i think that like with fallout particularly i, I think um and it's not something i want to like uh, throw dispersions or shade on at all mm-hmm. but i think that it's something that's very much uh because of the kind of kitsch styling that used to be at the kind of on the fringes of the game and the yeah, experience. Yeah. You're talking about uh, on the fringes in Fallout 1 and 2 back yeah. in the 90s. Yeah, so in the first games, it was like, you know, it had this sort of like 1950s kitsches and the characters, Pip-Boy, but it was very much like flavor rather than like a core. Th- and as it goes on, I feel like those those aspects have become more and more core and you've had things like, you know, the limited edition versions of the video games coming with an actual physical Pip-Boy. It's and the I, same with Star Wars, right? Where yeah. it becomes much more easy to market something when you reduce it to like recognizable silhouettes and items. And, and I feel yeah. like the, the Fallout as something compared to The Witcher is something where the love for it does actually bleed into merchandising a lot more easily and a lot more often. Mm-hmm. I, I might be wrong on that, but I think that, you know, you see people with Pip-Boy t-shirts, Fallout stuff. Yeah. So I think the reason I kind of decided to review it in the end basically kind of like half putting out a, ga- a thing being like, hey, maybe don't buy this, but half just being like for people who may- might play it and then think, this seems bad, am I losing my mind? Just as a sort of like, <laughs> you're, you're not, you're not. <laughs> it's not good. Um, was because I, I, I started thinking, well, so many people play Fallout, so many people will buy Fallout things. Yeah. And I thought, what if this is the first game, board game that someone plays? Yeah, think I it could be. Board games. Oh, I love board games. I love Fallout. Let's give it a go. It's such a shame because so many people who don't play board games backed, for example, the Kickstarter for the Dark Souls board game, yeah. which we've heard for all extensive purposes is not great. But if that's the first board game you buy, that could put you off board games for life. Yeah. So it's maybe not even that you think board games are terrible, but you just think maybe it just confirms what you kind of already thought. The board games are not very interesting and a bit boring. Yeah. And this, the Fallout board game tries to do everything. It tries to like map out the whole experience of what a Fallout thing would be. Mm-hmm. But it's also... The only real hook in it is um, about the sort of story stuff. You have this deck of story cards you go through and they're the quests and you can complete the quests either being good or bad. You know, so it's got everything. It's got morality. Um, <laughs> it's got morality. It's got everything. But it just, none of it hangs together. I played it with four and it was just very slow and you felt like no ownership of anything. I played it with two thinking, oh, we're going to get more of a sense of like ownership of the character mm-hmm. and the story and it just doesn't that work. For it's- reasons I go into in detail, um, but it's, 
it's really quite quite a mess. I think. I, the, uh, no, sorry, I was no, going to say. I mean, let's not spoil the review now. But is it? I mean, is it very quickly? It just trying to do too much. Is it trying to do all of the Fallout things, and maybe it should have just done one or two Fallout things? I mean, I think that's always the safest thing to to, to presume. I mean, I think that the XCOM game is not perfect by any means, but I think it, it succeeds by just trying to take a slice of of XCOM. Yeah, and, and it you know. And it keeps, the, it keeps some of the feel of XCOM exactly. by doing that. But it, interestingly, it keeps the feel of XCOM while ignoring any attempt to replicate the XCOM game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. And I think that's the key thing is, is what you should be looking at here is how do you replicate the feel right. of these things? And in this, it just feels like an exhaustive list of things. Yeah. It feels like the the thing I kind of like least about nerd culture of just being well, like, oh, uh, this things is, I recognize. The, the, yeah, the, the problem of adapting franchises to different mediums is uh, you end up looking at it like it is a checklist and you're like, oh, well, we've got to have this character, we've got to have this location, we've got to have this thing because they're all what the franchise is famous for. And why not just, you know, if you are doing a Star Trek board game, it could just be about Mr. Spock. It's it's kind of weird in the fact that I think I really, a bugbear of mine is when people complain about games, board games and say, oh, it's too random. I think that's not true. I think that actually often it's just there's like randomness in places that people personally don't like. And they, you know, they prefer their mm-hmm. randomness somewhere else. Um, but in this... You've got lots of little decks. So it's like, you know, what kind of loot are you going to get? Maybe you're going to get something amazing or something crap. Or how, so you're rolling dice for everything. Everything is such, has a, such a small amount of luck in it that every time you play it, you just don't feel like you're in control of anything. And you're sort of just rambling around and things are happening. And it's very unsatisfying. And I understand that there's games like that. And as I mentioned in the review, like Talisman is a game that I'm not yes. fond of. But at least Talisman... Um, it doesn't take long. Like there's a, there's. I mean, it takes ages, but yeah, it doesn't take long for each go. And it's yeah. yes, exactly. I mean, this was the fun conversation we had because Matt was writing the review and he's like, "Gosh, what should we recommend?" And I suggested Talisman because the thing about Talisman is none of us like it. It no. takes it takes a million years. But the thing that Talisman does well, and probably the reason it's been selling for decades, is that it's com- it it's so random, right? The reason that Talisman is exciting and the reason it's good and often funny, like I don't like Talisman, but I have to admit it's sometimes very funny, is because someone can land on a space, like you go into a forest, you find a sword in a bush, or you find a witch and then she just turns you into a frog for the next 10 turns. Like the, the swings are so massive. Yes. Yeah, it's just silly. Right, which means that it, it has that same fallout thing if we're walking around and leveling up. But what can happen to your friends is so all over the place that it ends up being funny. Yeah. So what people are saying, like when they say that Fallout's too random, maybe it's not that it's too random, it's maybe that it's not random enough. Maybe that it's using randomness in the wrong way. Like too random is the default excuse and often it's just... Yeah, no, and true. that's what I mean is I think like I don't like it when people say this is too random because usually they're wrong. But this game is just too random. <laughs> um, in the fact that like, you know, you, you have these threads of story but then you have no real control over it and anyone can complete the stories and it's competitive and it means you're like you're finishing quests like spoilers but I had one where my mate got turned into a super mutant and right. then like he had a chance to revert and turn himself back from not being a super mutant. And I had to look this up because I was like that's stupid but that's the thing that happens in Fallout 4 and it's again the reason why I'm like what is going on with this like so you get turned into super mutant by being put in irradiated viral gunk that's where they come from you shouldn't be able to go back from it like, oh right yes <laughs> but they, they've made that canon now that that can happen and I'm like really like it's a very modern superhero film thing to be like anything that's done can be undone anyway he had this quest line and he wanted to see if he could not be a super mutant but then I wanted to complete it and I completed it in a way that meant that and no one felt good about that. I was mm. like, oh, I'm going to get a reward for just doing this. So, yeah, I mean, I go into more detail, but it's basically one of these things where it just drags on for a long time. It's not a lot of fun. Maybe if you really like this kind of role and random stuff happen that happens in Talisman, but 
it also feels bitty and it has more systems than it needs and it's just overly complex. It's just a weird kind of mess. Interesting. Um, and I feel like it's it's one of those games that has so many little things going on that it kind of tricks you into initially thinking, hey, this is going to be quite cool and it's just really not. Mm. So that's a bit brutal. Well, I'd, I'd be interested to watch that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, it's worth knowing why it doesn't really work. Yeah. There's a couple of cardinal sins in it that I go into that I feel are just like strange things that are really kind of unpleasant so okay. do check out our youtube channel if you want to see matt uh be sad about fallout and i tell you what though i bet you made it look really nice on camera oh, it's beautifully shot yeah <laughs> i mean it looks nice right it's aesthetically nice no i've got to say actually this is a tiny thing which i i'll just uh, digress briefly is um i do feel weird about that sometimes where it's like i it's not really a game where i describe many of the mechanics in detail i wonder some people might not like that and i have to be like well look if you want to know how to play the game like read a manual or how to play i'd pretty much just go into the reasons why it doesn't really work but during doing that, I shoot it really nicely and make the models look really great and stuff. And I kind of feel like I did that with Rising Sun as well. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about how this game is, you know, has minis that work in a way that feels superfluous and doesn't really impact the but game you're making well. them look great. But then I'm also making it look great. And I, I find that a weird line to thing weird. of being like, I'm, I, I want to film this as well as possible to make it aesthetically pleasing to watch. But part of the process <laughs> is sexing up these products to make them look good whilst also saying that they're not. No, that's, is, that's, that's, that's three-dimensional. Uh, you are showing all sides. You're showing the beauty and you're showing the squalor. Yeah, but it's, it's an interesting problem, especially hey, when you're... You know yeah, what, yeah. Still, you're, you're, <laughs> you're giving respect to the artists who yeah. did a great job. Yeah. yeah. And I the think sculptors actually, and the artists and the producers. I think that was the thing I felt particularly with this game uh, was kind of most difficult in the fact that it really... Fantasy Flight, one thing they do really consistently is they have a line for what the quality of things is supposed to look like yep. and they do not drop below that. Oh, yeah. God, no. And Fantasy Flight just... Still, we have so much respect for the games they make and what they look like. Yeah, and it's a, it's a beautiful game, but it's just not very good. Well, finally then, let's talk about something completely different in the words of Monty Python. Did I tell, ever tell you guys what the other name for Monty Python was going to be? No. They, they were trying to come up with a name for ages, and Monty Python's Flying Circus was the first choice. The second choice was Arthur Megapode's Cheap Show. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I think it's, it's amazing. So there's a Kickstarter live now for um, a book called Edible Games Cookbook, colon, yeah. Play With Your Food, Don't Play With Your Colon. Um, and it is well on its way to being funded. Uh, but what we've got here, Pip wrote a bit about this last year. It's a bunch of games that you can cook and then make and or eat. And so we thought we'd talk very briefly about our experience with one of those games because we did a little play test of one of the we games. We did it. With uh, designer Jen Sandercock. In GDC uh, San Francisco, in San Francisco at GDC even, we were French <laughs> spies and we had to decode things by tasting food. Eating cakes. And doing kind of a cryptic logic puzzle. It was a, which, it was a, a cr- code cracking cream puff. Adventure. That was it. And uh, there's so there's this combination of like eating things, writing down information about things you've eaten, comparing, made me think about my taste buds a lot more because I was like, oh yeah, that taste is orange. So mm, what does that can? Yes, it and was. I had a tricky thing early on when I was I tasted mine and everyone was like, oh, mine's mint, mine's this. And yeah, like, mine has a flavour, <laughs> but I don't know what it is. And then someone else was like mine's cinnamon i was like no mine's cinnamon and then i was like yeah gosh like i've worked out what it is but now i'm i felt like i was in a fight with someone being like i've got the cinnamon one not you but that that thematically yeah you know that there were like multiple you know it was a mystery i hadn't lost my mind it was it's quite embarrassing to not know a flavor yeah (laughs) Yeah. it was just a fascinating like facet of challenge that we'd never encountered before because obviously like i can do you know cognitive puzzles i can do real-time stuff but can i taste 
things? Let's find out. Can boy taste good? Let's know. <laughs> so yeah, it was uh, just a game where we had to solve a puzzle by cracking a cipher, and the cipher was partially included in letters we'd been written by the French Resistance, letters that, oh sorry, uh, codes that were included in the different pastries we were given. So it was like the pastry shop within the fiction of the game um, was working with the French Resistance to smuggle mm-hmm. codes to us. Um, and it was great in yeah. terms of like, I, I don't know how I'd rank it next to board games because it's impossible, but it was the best dessert I've ever had, <laughs> you know, like in terms of it being a delicious thing to eat. And then also just a game that was great. It was, I mean, it was fantastic for a bunch of strange reasons. Um, things that you just don't get in normal games, like the fact that, Hey, you're eating a cake and it's delicious. Yes. Um, and, but then you've got the question of, how much of this cake should I eat to be sure about the flavor? <laughs> and then, as you're cracking the code, you think, mm, maybe I just want to eat some more cake. But have you derived all of the clues you need to from that cake? Yeah. Will you remember what color the icing was? Will you remember what color the pastry was? Right. Will you remember what was on top of it? Because these things it? were relevant. These things were relevant. And also just generally food as a prop or as a game component, that's quite good. Yeah, and also, hey, you could game it of being like, you just, you'd must destroy this message. You look at the cream puff, you examine it, you remember it, and then you eat it, and then you <laughs> remember, which would be a fun house rule. The thing I loved about it, though, actually, was obviously like we, we had to... D- all had our own cream puff. Mm-hmm. And actually, after we'd done the individual thing of what flavor it is, from that point onwards, you, you were just purely team input because you could just look at each other's things and be like, look, yours is red, mine is blue, yeah. et cetera. So it wasn't super important to be like, you know, what what's going on with my cream puff? Um, but what I loved was, it was a fantastic dessert. And it's such an interesting piece of game design in the fact yeah. that you play a game after you've all sat down and eaten and not in substantial amounts of sugar, <laughs> which is incredible game design, especially yes. as an after, as a curiosity to do after a meal at a dinner right. party or something. Yeah. Be like to literally play a game whilst eating sugar, because especially because you're all trying to crack codes together. Right. We all got way overexcited because we'd all had loads of sugar. I was just thinking like, is there a game I've been more excited to play in the whole time we've done Shut Up and Sit Down than in that room when we arrived for the playtest and there were a bunch of amazing looking cream puffs on the table. I've never been like, can we start playing? Can we start playing? Can we start playing? We well, start it playing? brings you back almost to the idea that games, are, uh, as well as everything else, they are a social experience. They're something that you share together the same way a meal might be as well. Exactly. It's a new yeah. way to do a social meal game, whatever. It's just yep. combine both. Are you short for time? This is what you do. It and just, yet, it's, <laughs> it works. And yet, fascinatingly, also, one of the the difficult things about being a critic over a long period of time is learning to know yourself and know your own headspace and to accept the days and work identify the days when maybe you're not enjoying something that much because you're just in a bad mood. Mm-hmm. I think this game doesn't seem good. Is the game bad or am I in a bad mood? Yeah. And learning to gauge that and know when you're getting it right <laughs> and wrong is the job long term. And you can never do it perfectly and every day and every now and then you're just going to screw it up. Mm-hmm. However, this is one of these games I was playing. I'm like, I'm having great fun, but I cannot trust my opinions at all because I've just had loads of sugar. <laughs> and like, that's kind of fascinating and wonderful. But like, also, it, that's going to be the same experience for your exactly, guests as well. <laughs> exactly. It's basically like saying, this game is great if you drink half a can of Coke before playing it. <laughs> like, But it's wonderful. And I, I thought it was tons of fun. And when we cracked the code, there was a lovely finale. Oh, no, don't which we won't spoil. Oh, no, yeah. we won't spoil. But there was a finale, which meant like, you have to be like, are you sure? Are dun, you sure you cracked it? Do something at the end, which was really fun yeah. to show whether or not you've done it. A fascinating thing. And I think like it's a reminder really of like all the different uh, like elements that play can use as mechanics. Yeah. Using your own 
body chemistry as a mechanic. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Fascinating. Absolutely. Um, we should say that, yeah, uh, you might be surprised when you go to the Kickstarter page that the hardback book does retail for um, quite a high price, but it's partially just because we know how much time and effort and energy went into this from Jen Sandercook. And also she was working with a professional food, food photographer. So while we don't have the finished book yet, I have no doubt that it's going to be absolutely amazing. And if you'd like to read more, um, if you search for Philippa War, Shut Up and Sit Down, Edible Games, you'll find Pip's article uh, when she interviewed Jen um, on our site in the earlier stages of the process and yeah. talking about a completely different game from the book. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's a bunch, there's what, 12? I believe so. A, a, maybe a baker's dozen? It's not for everyone, but it's interesting stuff. Well worth a look. Yeah. Ooh, put your hand in my mailbag for me a letter. It's time once again for us to descend into the mailbag. I've got my pitons. I have my, my rope with which you two will belay me down. Okay. Easing you in. Ah, you're very heavy. Yes. I need help, Paul. I, I need I, help. Sorry, I was sh- I was looking at my phone. What's happening? It's fine. I've got him out. I have a mail. Uh, it is from Phil Mason. And Phil Mason writes, and hey, you know what? This, this letter makes me sound real good. Oh. <laughs> it says, hi all. I thought I'd send you thanks for saving my enjoyment of the UK Games Expo last Friday, though you probably didn't know you did it. I'd spent the first few hours wandering the show floor alone in crowds. A combination of illness and holiday had deprived me of my usual companions. No problem, I thought. I'm an adult. And Asperger's symptoms be damned, I've got this. I didn't have this. After a couple of shiny, noisy hours, I was badly overstimulated, and though I hadn't noticed it, I was on the point of freezing up, and I would probably have had to leave the show for some hours, basically finishing the day, and I hadn't even bought anything yet. I then happened to run into you guys, and despite being really busy, you took a few minutes to chat with me and put up with me telling you an anecdote which sounded hilarious in my head and really weird (laughs) out loud uh, before you wished me a good show and headed off. That quieter time chatting allowed me to spot how wrong things had started to go in my head, and I went somewhere quiet to sit down, chill out, and rest. This proved enough for me to enjoy the rest of the day at the show in slightly smaller chunks with breaks in between. Thanks again, and I hope I didn't freak you out too much. I don't think so. No, no, I don't Absolutely. think I got freaked out. I think we, we've all yeah, got sorry. stories that sound also hilarious in our heads and just different when they come out. But I think that's part of what does make them hilarious in our heads. I think, like, I think more often than not, we worry about freaking other people out when we talk yeah. to them at conventions because we're, I'm often massively overstimulated and struggling. There, so it, this is a thing, a convention, a crowded space full of a lot of people and a lot of noise is not always the easiest thing for somebody to cope with. And then particularly like for eight hours, I think lots of people start to find that challenging. Exactly. And what I wanted to say really is that a lot of the board game industry feels that going to conventions is an enormous part of like the experience Mm -hmm. And I wanted to kind of go on the podcast and say, hey, if that's not your thing, and there are a lot of reasons why it wouldn't be your thing, you Mm -hmm. don't have to do it. You know, buying games early and playing games early, ignore the prestige from that. If you don't like crowds, then why would you go to board game conventions? Or certainly, why would you go to a big one? Why would you go to one without friends? These things can be really stressful, and you should not feel that it's a part of the hobby if it's not something that makes you comfortable. No, I absolutely agree. The places and parts of them that make me most comfortable are usually the things around the fringe of these things, so not actually in the convention centers themselves. Because the UK Games Expo this year, like in the past, it's felt more quiet and cozy. This year, it felt a little bit more like a normal convention. It was so much busier. It's like 40,000 people or something. Yeah, So, but then the thing is, you know, I like the bits on the outside when you go in the hotel and there'll be like a big room full of people, low lit, lots of tables of people just playing and laughing and yeah. doing games on their own in the soft spaces with good acoustics. And there I'm like, this is nice. I yeah. like the feeling of having people around, but often these places are very harsh, concrete, bright lights. So yeah, like 
it's cool. And if at any point, yeah, if someone's stressed and they feel they can be anchored by a warm conversation with somebody there, that anyone should stop us at any point if they see us roaming around. Yeah, I mean, we are we are there to meet people, and that's one of the best that's parts the best of the part. show. Honestly, yeah. it's the human moments you have with people, um, especially you know if they know what you do and like that. That's lovely. But otherwise, it's just having conversations, people one to one. Uh, the things that keep me going while I'm there. Cause that's I've, really nice. <laughs> I find them a bit much if I'm honest as well. So I think a lot of time people see me just running around looking harrowed. Yeah. It's because I, I don't like moving around them very much. It's, it's very difficult busy. to move around a space like that. And also the the other thing I hear a lot from people is uh, the worry that they are not doing it right or they're not seeing the right things or they're not seeing everything. And you can't. There's there's not a right way to do a convention, oh, yeah. and you also cannot see all of the things. No. Everybody goes away going, "Oh, I wish I'd seen this," but that's that's normal. Also, that's fine. what I'd stress is like you know people talk about, "Oh, you have to go to the big conventions like Gen Con, or if you're a European, we got torn off a strip recently for never having gone to uh, the Spiel convention in mm. Essen, which is yeah. of course the world's biggest, I think, or maybe the not the, anymore, but an enormous German convention. Mm. And the thing is, big conventions run contrary to what board games are about. One of the reasons that Sharks, our convention, which is happening in October, um, is so nice is because it's small enough that people can make friends and yeah. play games and you can sit down at a table and that's what this hobby is all about. Yeah, I d- I'm definitely a fan more of smaller conventions than the bigger ones. Yes. I find the big ones to be... Uh, overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, overwhelming. Phil also had a question, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, it starts with a point. So uh, he writes, um, the trouble with playing two-player games with your significant other is that either you lose or they do, neither outcome a particularly happy one. Co-op games fix this to an extent, but sometimes there's nothing quite like a human opponent. There are some competitive games which leave you with a feeling of accomplishment even if you lose. I'm thinking of things like completing a big city in Carcassonne or getting your train all the way to the end of the line in Great Western Trail. You might not win, but you know you worked towards and accomplished something, which is no small feat. Can you suggest some games which are particularly strong in this area? And we can suggest games, but I thought that was a really good point. Like, yeah. the difference between games where... Because that is a problem I've come up against a lot. And Phil kind of helped me realize something, which is, yeah, two-player games with people can be really uncomfortable sometimes. As long as we're talking about discomfort, which is the theme of this mailbag. <laughs> like, I have a great time playing games with Matt because we're both just, like, fully competitive and we fling ourselves against mm. each other. But, you know, sometimes, because I play a lot of board games, I'm quite good at them. It becomes this, like, almost uncomfortable thing. I have a problem of I find that the, the games I enjoy the most, actually, are the ones which are, like... The most aggressive? Yeah, in a way. Like, not aggressive is the wrong word. I think, like, um, focusing mm-hmm. is the word. But again, like, I think those are often two player games like Tigris and Euphrates like I bought oh it recently and goodness. I love it I bought it no I didn't buy it recently I bought it after we reviewed it as soon as we reviewed it I bought a copy because I'm like I want this that's I intense I haven't played with it since though and I really want to play it but it's like finding the right time finding the right people because like when me and Quinn's played it like it was pretty neck and neck mm. and he beat me in the end but it was like all to play for but I know with some of the people I play games with I just crushed them. No, and there's and there's no satisfaction in that for either of you. No. Um, So it is that thing of being like, "Mm, who's up for like, you know, getting trashed and containers another one as well of being like, you know, you got to you got to accept the fact that you might really, yeah, you might smash somebody, you might just get crushed. So it's funny. uh, What I'm immediately thinking of are some of the maybe very Rosenberg-ish kind of Euro games or games where there there are multiple different streams to score points and do things, and then you could maybe come away with some satisfaction of being like, I played Caverna and I didn't do this very well, but my cave is really well laid out or I got these resources or I like, I have all of these dogs yeah. or something like that. And 
I don't know. I'm immediately thinking of games where there are multiple sort of scoring streams and you can feel satisfied that you finished building a thing or collected the most of a thing, even if you're not the winner. Feast for Odin is really good for that because Mm, um, there's not that much clashing. Um, Yeah, we played played that two player. And and I think, again, you trashed me because you played it and you just had a strategy. Whereas I just had a lot of fun, (laughs) like, exploring the mountains. But I had a fascinating (laughs) thing with Feast for Odin recently where I I was playing and I got a terrible score. It's when I played with Paul recently. I pursued a different strategy, involved having lots of islands, and my score was garbage. And (laughs) rather than being like, oh, Paul beat me, um, I was like, oh, what happened to my high score? So I think maybe, yeah, Uwe Rosenberg games are a great shout. Games like Caverna or Feast for Odin or what are some other ones we like? Those are the two I'd start with anyway. Yes. All creatures great and small maybe, but um, yeah, these are games where I would maybe in the rules explanation encourage, like tell people this is a kind of score attack game, you know? Tell people we will be interacting, but you know, you're trying to beat your high score. Maybe it's about perspective, you know? Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, to be honest, for me, the only things I find are safe in terms of being like just playing two player. It's just co-op stuff. Like, and I think you can you can get stuff, co-op stuff which is which is you know more interesting. Like, I think the best two player game to come out in quite some time still is the Arkham Horror yeah, card game. That's what I was going to say. Like, I, I think that actually with with more players, some of the campaign missions just don't really work pop as well. I think with two players, it's just perfect, fantastic, and yeah. I, I think that that is like it's a co-op game, but. Um, it still feels like you have enough uh, excitement and conflict to kind of forget that in a way. Because I know that sometimes people feel like they do want something a bit more like competitive. I think it's because the game is so mean with you <laughs> that you you always feel like you're fighting against the game. Um, so you never have that moment of feeling like, I think some people don't like co-op games because they feel like they're maybe a little soft, a little less, not enough bite. Oh my God, the Arkham card game has so much yeah, bite. <laughs> too much bite. I love the rule it has of being like, if you're never sure about a rule, whatever is the worst thing to happen, that happens. happens. <laughs> and I'm like, that's great. <laughs> yeah, um, But yeah, that's that's definitely the best recommendation. I might also suggest um, Roland Wrights, which are uh, having a big, big year. Which are games A resurgence. Where, a resurgence, yeah. Where games like Yahtzee, where you roll some dice usually and then you write things down on a piece of paper and they tend to be very non-interactive. Yeah. Um, and so they are very much score attack games. So I would look at uh, Gans Sean Clever. Clever. And I, which is, if you have no idea how to spell that, you're not alone. And that will be written down in the description of this podcast. And also I would mention Welcome To. Yeah. Welcome To is a game which we are very much looking forward to giving the video review treatment when it releases in September. Mm. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that was both very. It was like being in a sort of weird cultish cabal where I say mm, something. And you, that's what board games do to you. You get excited about them, and then no one else understands, and it's just you and your own friends. Who wants to play it? A little game called Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> Me, excellent. I'm going to prepare my robes. Thank you for listening. Spoilers. <laughs> so, I think you're allowed to spoil spoilers for spoil Eyes Wide films <laughs> from a long, long time ago. Mm. A long, long time ago. You, you made it sound like my childhood is in the distant realms of the past. It is. Oh, I like it when you two do that. Let's do that some more after the podcast is over. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this podcast, you'll be able to help us a great deal by reviewing it on your podcast software because, hey, podcast discoverability is really bad. And this is... Keeps, it keeps squinting up all night long. It no, it really does. does. It infuriates me because it's like, this is a really good podcast. On Reddit's board games board, <laughs> there was a thread recently being like, what are the best board game podcasts aside from Shut Up and Sit Down? Because obviously we all know about that. And I was that, that made you very happy. I was flattered it? by that, and I loved it because I really do like this podcast. And yet, our numbers just aren't going up because no one can find out about it. But you listening to this, you can tell your friends, you can leave us a review, you can help me to watch a number go up, <laughs> and that's what I crave. All right, Bob Geldof, that's uh, it for this week. 
Uh, thank you very much. We'll see you, you next time. There's yeah. a podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.